0: The Center for Fiction is a home for readers and writers in Brooklyn and beyond, offering a bookstore, library, member's lounge, and cafe, along with hybrid author events, writing workshops, reading groups, and more. Celebrate storytelling in all its forms at centerforfiction.org. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. You would think, out of sight, out of mind, would be impossible in an era where we have constant access to information. But that overload often works in favor of governments of all scales. Whether, as discussed in last week's episode, it's Eric Adams giving NYPD officers more power to throw the unhoused off of trains, or, as we'll hear in this episode, It's the United States embracing remote, borderless warfare abroad. In the December 2022 issue, Caitlin Chandler wrote about her attempts to find out what exactly U.S. counterterrorism strategy in Africa looks like. Questions that were sometimes met with shrugs by those overseeing operations in Niger. Chandler's story also amplifies the voices of Nigerians who are working to resolve local conflicts. Here's our conversation. I'm really struck by the familiarity because, you know, the story doesn't start when we think the story starts. The story starts in the 90s with the Algerian civil war and this fear that deserts are a breeding ground for terrorism. And that's when the US first started going there. So, I guess this this idea that, you know, this remote part of the world that deserts in particular are kind of this hotbed for terrorism. I mean, where does that idea come from? Is it just pure like Orientalism or is it, you know, what sort of steps led up to this process of intervention or this particularly bizarre form of intervention?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating and strange story. And when I was speaking to scholars and folks who had worked for the US government previously, Many of them felt that it really started with the Cold War ending and the us military searching for a new place to get involved because their missions were winding down in Europe They
0: need something to
1: do yes <laughs> <laughs> and there was this idea at the time that um, across the ocean in some of the places where there were armed groups and where there was you know where there were various conflicts that these open spaces would, as you say, be a breeding ground for terrorism. Um, So I think it was was sort of two things in parallel. One was just the continual American military expansion and this idea that once you've built up a military, you don't, you know, take it back down, you just continue to sort of expand almost this imperial sort of strategy. And then of course, after 9-11, and with the war on terror, there was a linking of these two um, parallel streams. And then the rationalization became, we need to prevent terrorism in Africa, and the best way we can do that is through training and building up African armies and becoming involved in these countries.
0: And maybe arming the wrong militant group. Oops. Yes, <laughs> that is a story we see again
1: and again. It's
0: very, yeah, a yeah, uh, very circular story. And of course, you know, um, some of the subjects in your piece Compared it to Afghanistan, the presence in Niger to the, pre- the U.S.'s president presence in Afghanistan. So, I mean, we sort of danced around how these two occupations are similar. But how would you say? Would you would you agree with those who were willing to kind of come out and be like, "Yeah, this is history repeating itself"?
1: I think there are there are definitely ways in which it's similar, and then ways that it's different. And in terms of similarities, you know. You, again, had the U.S. um, giving weapons and training to foreign forces that were not always vetted or supporting certain um, sides or leaders over others. You also, though, had, you know, especially after 2017, when there were the deaths of um, these American Special Forces soldiers, you had this increased scale back strategy where Everything was going to sort of become remote and everything was going to be done by proxy. And I think
0: boots off the ground.
1: Yes, boots <laughs> off the ground. So you had sort of like the opposite where the idea was we won't be seen, we won't be visible, but we will be sort of trying to influence things as much as possible from these you know, windowless conference rooms, from the people that were funding or training. And you didn't see you know, more American soldiers going there. But I really wanted to make the case in this piece that that doesn't mean there aren't serious consequences for the military's engagement.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, there are a variety of reasons why the U.S. has taken this bootless, I'll just call it a bootless strategy in mediating international conflicts or starting them as the case may be. You know, when the U.S. pulled its troops out of Afghanistan in August of 2021, you know, Biden promised that the fight against terrorism would continue, albeit in a different form. And so when he said that, was he talking about things like the situation in Niger? Or, you know, do you feel like that's, you know, based on the reporting you've done? Is that actually an accurate statement? Are we actually fighting terrorism? Well, there's a
1: lot to unpack there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that President Biden was explicitly referencing Niger or some of the U.S. counterterrorism work in, in the Sahel and in Africa more broadly. But I think that what has occurred in Niger is exactly what he's proposing to do in Afghanistan and what has played out in other parts of the world. And that's this sort of remote assistance, the ability of drones to monitor large amounts of territory. Now the U.S. has several drone bases in Niger. Um, The using of sort of proxies and the funding of these local groups. And I think when it comes to the Sahel, the U.S. has also been involved there for over 20 years. Yes. And the strategy doesn't seem to be working in, in that violent conflict and terrorism has only increased. And it's really striking that the U.S. government is not considering a revised policy in light of the the evidence on the ground. And I think that's something that I wanted to explore in the piece.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you know, as I was saying, the initial impetus for getting involved in the Sahel was the Algerian Civil War. But there's another really important North African conflict that we need to talk about, which is Libya. And I mean, the reporting on that and how absolutely just destabilizing that was to the entire region I mean when and and in particular with regards to human trafficking terrorism displacement all sorts of really awful um implications from that you know how how much of that concern goes into military leaders decision to involve or like I guess how much are people actually learning From these events, and like, how bad was the conflict in Libya? Sort of like throwing fuel on the fire in this case.
1: Well, I think most historians and analysts conclude that um, what happened after Gaddafi was killed and the destabilization of the Sahel that followed um, that that his death definitely played a role in that. But at the same time, there were a number of local dynamics that had been going on for years. Um, so it wasn't the only factor, but it definitely was a critical factor. You also had weapons trafficking uh, increasing after his death. Um, and you had a number of fighters that had been employed in Libya returning home and then getting involved in the destabilization of Mali in 2012. So in terms of the U.S. learning from the past, I'm not sure I saw much evidence
0: of that in Niger. Mm-hmm. Um but, I mean, there's there's always this talk about, like, domino theory. To what, like, does anyone actually believe in domino theory? Or is it, like, this time the dominoes aren't going to fall? Because, <laughs> again, it, it it's just hard to read this and just come back to the fact that this is such an obvious pattern. And that it's, like, how many times are you going to fool yourself? <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think... One of the things that's really remarkable when you look at at the counterterrorism work in the Sahel is also that, you know, in the beginning, even when groups started aligning with the so-called Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, they were not actually explicitly linked to these organizations in other countries. And for many years, even as the U.S. and and foreign forces were getting involved, these groups were preying on local conflicts and dynamics. And then despite the intervention of all these foreign forces, today you actually have a situation in which uh, the instability is spreading and there are more links to international terrorist networks, although analysts don't think that these groups have the capacity to strike anywhere outside. Right. It It
0: just hurts those people abroad, which is, again, perhaps why we, you know, the reporting on this is really lax. But it would also be interesting, you know, having been there what what do you why do you feel like there's no there's no interest in this? Because again, I I think if you asked any person on the street like do you, is there a US military presence in Niger? They would be like what's Niger? <laughs> and no.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm really grateful that Harper's, you know, published this story because the amount of attention in the media uh, has been so scant. And with the exception of a couple reporters such as Nick Terse at The Intercept, and also Joe Penny, who went to Agadez in Niger and did a piece, there's been very little on the ground reporting. And that was really what motivated me to go and to try to talk to Nigerians directly and understand how they were being impacted by the foreign forces and by the conflict. But I think that there's Unfortunately, still in U.S. media, you know, a preoccupation with certain crises or conflicts, and
0: or Donald Trump, or Donald Trump, because he's kind of funny. Right.
1: <laughs> so, like during the Trump years, there was very little interest in foreign stories or foreign reporting. Um, at the same time, the Sahel, maybe because it's francophone, it just it has it seems to have less American journalists there who are reporting on the ground. The region has become increasingly unstable. Um. So I think there are a number of reasons, but I do think it's really important that journalists continue to report on places, even if they're not in the daily news cycle.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, we, you know, part like you, we, whenever you talk about Africa, we always come back to this issue of the Berlin Conference, where this entire continent was divided up amongst these European powers uh, without any regard for, you know, um, where different tribes lived, without any regard for the people who actually lived there. And then once you hit the post-colonial era, you have these artificial borders and then all of these tribal conflicts. And it's sort of like these problems on top of these problems. And and like, well, whose land is this really anyway? And it ends up, you know, when you have, say, weapons traffickers or people joining the, you know, being trained by the U.S. military uh, who just happen to prey upon a certain ethnic group over and over and over again and be like, you know, very suspicious sort of behavior. I mean, there are these things that are just intensifying it and making it so awful. Yeah. Well, this issue of colonial borders really comes into play
1: um, in this area that I was writing about in the piece because the area between Mali and Niger, it used to be open. And then even after this border was created... It was not policed and people, you know, crossed back and forth and had family members on both sides. But then post 9-11 and with this idea that the best way to prevent terrorism is through strengthening borders and automated, you know, checkpoints and immigration controls, you see European countries as well as the U.S. funding the buildup of the border and this idea of trying to police the border, which is not so viable in these areas in which it used to be open
0: Right. And so I think that is something that factors into this conflict. And then again, of course, like the idea of the West's obsession with borders just doesn't ever, never seems to play out very well. But, you know, we're talking about an area of Africa that was given to the French. And there was a sizable French presence in Niger and in across the Sahel. But Macron pulled them out, actually, I believe earlier this year. Um, so to what extent you know can you speak to what motivated that decision on his part I mean is it sort of like oh we've been doing this war on terror for a little too long maybe we should get out uh, or is it or is it something more sort of sensible is there sort of a, are, are the a, again a crazy sentence but are the French being sensible <laughs> in this on this one issue um,
1: yeah so it's very interesting because, as you know, France intervened in Mali um, years ago and uh, at the request of the Malayan government after there was this uh, destabilization in the north and got very involved in the war there. Their efforts have not been successful. And in the meantime, Mali has become increasingly unstable. And more recently, the government has turned against France and invited, for instance, um, Russia's Wagner group to come into the country and fight alongside them. And so in light of these changing dynamics, as well as what I think is the unpopularity of French soldiers dying in Mali back in France, Macron decided to move French forces to Niger and have them conduct cross-border missions from Niger, which is now seen as sort of the more stable country in the region from which to base military operations and means that it's also turning into this hub of foreign forces. Um, and Macron has also sought closer partnership with the U.S. and with the Biden administration more recently.
0: Yeah, I mean, because you mentioned briefly there are, you know, there are these weird remnants of the West. There's like the New York restaurant and all this sort of stuff. You know, what kind of NGOs are there and how many of them are CIA cutouts? <laughs>
1: Well, I didn't hear of any working for the CIA while sure, I was there. Sure. I didn't ask that question. No,
0: of course. You can't You can't. Ask. <laughs> uh, no, but ser- seriously, it, it would be great to hear about the NGO presence because those organizations, again, regardless of who is funding them, can have so much impact on the local to the national level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think all of the main international NGOs are in Niger and are based in Niame and then have you know, operations across the country. And there are, of course, a number of intersecting issues from the, you know, climate change is forcing the desert further and further south in Niger. People are losing their livelihoods. There are flash floods. There's widespread hunger. Um, but what I was sort of struck by from the the limited time that I had was that when I visited this displaced persons camp uh, and met a woman who had recently fled violence in her village and come to this displaced persons camp no one was there to triage her or to refer her immediately to a clinic and she eventually had to make her own way to a clinic which should not happen if you've traveled you know that long and reached a camp and I think there are possibly a few reasons for that discrepancy just based on what I can discern from the time I was there one is that the Nigerian government has made it very difficult for NGOs to go to Tilbury. Um They have to, in general, have armed escorts unless they can negotiate a special deal with the government. And while some organizations like UN organizations have accepted that, other humanitarian organizations reject the principle of an armed escort. They want to be accessible to people. Uh, so there are some access issues. But I also think that unfortunately, you know, every NGO has its issue. And sometimes on the ground, what you see is that people that don't fit a particular category, or internally displaced people might not be
0: receiving the same level of services as other people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this sort of gets to the question of accuracy, uh, which is, it seems to be a larger issue with all of these uh, uh, remote not not so not involved, actually involved wars that we fight or occupations or whatever you want to call it, these military operations, these things that are incredibly opaque, even to someone like you who's literally there. And I mean there's this part of your piece where you ask the question that I would I've always wanted to ask, which is simply like why the US has this incredible aerial surveillance. And yet they could not predict when attacks were going to happen, and also they do a terrible job of, tra- you know, like you know, killing civilians. Like the the amount, like the imprecise nature of this operation. How can that be? Because it again, it, the idea that we're not going to make this messy. This is absolutely messy. It's
1: incredibly messy, and I think one of the things. You can see in niger is the way the objectives of the u.s military have shifted over the years so you know they built this huge drone base in agadez which is um in northern niger you know sort of towards the border with libya and it's very clear from building this base in the middle of nowhere that those drones are meant to basically fly north into libya and to monitor you know that part of the world then as things sort of deteriorate in Mali and there's more violence in Tilibari, this region that's closer to Niamey, there does not seem to be a shifting of, you know, that um, ability to do aer- aerial surveillance to Tilibari. So I think Nigerians are also very confused by this. I spoke with someone who had fled his home in Tilibari and was living in Niamey. And he said, you know, we don't trust the Americans. You have all the technology in the world, but we're the ones being killed. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think that, you know, even flying drones over this sort of vast territory, it's not as precise as people might think. So there are, you know, there can be um, misinterpretation of things on the ground. And at the end of the day, because this is, you know, it has the dynamics of an insurgency where, a small group of people on motorcycles will go to a village and shoot people, and it's not always possible to pick up that those people on motorcycles are necessarily from one of these armed groups, or if they're just people who are, you know, going to the market. Or So there's sort of this murkiness around even who is a member of some of these armed groups, and then that plays out and not being able to have an effective response.
0: Right. And I mean, you know, there's, you know, there's a very simple explanation as to why the U.S. military might want to employ drones because it means less American casualties. But, you know, again, weighing the imprecision of this, what do you feel like military leaders feel are the benefits of this approach, aside from the the basic optics sort of situation?
1: I mean, I, I still, after going there and, you know, doing all the research for this piece, I still... walked away thinking, you know, that, that that base in Agadez is really just there to expand the ability of the U.S. military to surveil, but also possibly reach areas that it couldn't previously access. And so in that sense, I feel that Niger has sort of been used as a way to advance the broader goals of the U.S. military. And although some of the commanders and soldiers that I spoke to were very sincere about wanting to Prevent terrorist attacks in Niger and support the Nigerian army to prevent terrorist attacks. The overall strategy just did not add up in terms of reducing the conflict in Niger. And then when I met with the special forces commander in Niame, which I talk about in the piece, and asked him, you know, do you think a military response can actually solve this conflict? He very clearly said, no, it has right. to be diplomacy. You know, we're just sort of buying time. Uh, so that it was really fascinating that the U.S. military actually says that explicitly, yet there's sort of no higher directive from the president's office or Congress to create a non-military strategy and implement that.
0: And why do you think that is? Because, again, this, the, this, this problem with this, like, we're occupying this state. Maybe we're not. Maybe we are. Maybe we aren't. Ha, ha, ha. It's just drones. It seems like nobody's driving the car. Nobody, or literally no one's piloting the drone. Like, so why is there this absolute lack of, like, why is no one taking charge of this? Because if you, because the obvious parallel to what you just described is what the U.S. did in South Korea, where that was a base of power in Southeast Asia, where, you know, in addition to some place like Japan, where we wrote their whole constitution, but that, you know, it was like this place where you fight, the little, you know, like, this is a U.S. military base that is also a country and it's also a capitalist stronghold and this is our foothold in this region and we're going to do all this other secret bad shit from here. So, like, why is there no directive? Why is there no one, you know, in charge, seemingly?
1: Well, that's the question that I feel members of Congress should be asking of the current administration because I asked everyone possible in Niamey, and I never got a response that made sense. But I can imagine there are a couple of things that factor in. And I think one is just that because the media ignores this part of the world, because as we've talked about, you know, African policy has been more neglected than other foreign policy uh, under different U.S. administrations, there just seems to be a sort of lack of interest or a lack of putting, you know, thoughtful people to work on this. Um, that could come up with a different response to this issue. And then most recently, uh, there was a piece in the Washington Post which reported that the Biden administration had been thinking of revising its military strategy in the Sahel, but due to pressure from France had just sort of backed down and gone with this, well, we'll support a NATO ally. And so I think a lot of these outdated models continue to drive U.S. foreign policy, and it doesn't fit the world that we live in anymore. And it doesn't fit, you know, the people who are actually working on these issues and saying over and over again, hey, guys, this is not working.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you feel like if there were like properly allocated resources, could the U.S. turn Niger into like South Korea and have it be this um, problematic, like deeply problematic, but still, you know, foothold in the region that, you know, we can do all sorts of war crimes through?
1: I mean, I think Nigerians would definitely resist that happening. And there is a really vocal opposition to the expansion of foreign forces in Niger. It's not reported on so often, but there have been protests more recently against, you know, the French coming. There's a lot of anti-French sentiment left over from uh, colonialism.
0: but it's, And more recently. Yeah, and more <laughs> recently. The thing, the thing, it's like when you learn about post-colonial, it's like, colonial is in there for a reason. <laughs> yeah. But, please, yeah, please continue.
1: No, but it's you know the the same political party has been in power for a long time. You know, Niger doesn't have a great environment for journalists. I met a journalist there who had reported on corruption in the Department of Defense and then been imprisoned for the reporting that she did at Samira Sabo. So I'm not really sure what would happen if the u s. greatly increased its resources there, but I definitely think its current strategy, Doesn't meet the needs on the ground.
0: You were reporting drone warfare poses difficulties that other types of conflict would not. Let's say, you know, like in a lot of this stuff, like you had to rely on secondhand information. Can you talk about the process of reporting this? And then, of course, it would be interesting to hear because it seemed like you were extremely restricted in what you could actually do. Yes, it was a very difficult story to report in
1: part because it seems that Africa Command's policy is not to grant journalists much access on the ground. Um, I was in touch with them for over a year before I went to Niger asking if I could have in-person access. And at the end of the day, uh, the Air Force, which actually manages the drone bases, and they denied us the ability to visit either the base in Niamey or the base in Agadez. And it was actually the special forces that allowed us to do these interviews and have some access. Um, But it was very restricted. And it seems that they, in general, there's also a favoring of journalists who report favorably on military issues. Can't believe that. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) But, you know, I was very persistent. And I did feel that by continually emphasizing that I really wanted to understand what was going on and the US's response eventually I did get through some doors and I was able to to gather some content. But I think that the the sort of trend of not wanting to share information or access with journalists is disturbing and is really something that could be radically changed if, you know, at the top leadership there was a directive that you can't just keep giving people the runaround if they're there reporting on these issues. Um, And one thing that I found really strange was that I actually had more access to the special forces than to the State Department and the U.S. Embassy who were not able to meet for whatever reasons while I was there and, you know, who it took several weeks to get any kind of meaningful response from. And I don't know if that's because, you know, they're short-staffed or if that's because that was intentional. It could be any number of things. But as an American who's reported in other countries, I'd never been to a country where the U.S. Embassy was not able to meet with a journalist who was in town. So it was strange. And it required going to some of these places in Niame and just listening and observing. And that's how at this restaurant one night, I overheard someone who was with the German special forces who was telling his date next to me (laughs) (laughs) what they were doing. And I, yeah, heard this sort of funny conversation.
0: Because, I mean, when you... The fact that you had easier access to soldiers in a certain sense reminds me of the U.S. strategy during the Second Iraq War, where it's like, okay, so let's set up these green zones. Let's limit what goes in, what goes out. But also, let's emphasize the story of soldiers and let's put a human face on it and let's make these really try to emphasize that, you know, uh, not that many people are dying. It's okay, but also, not that many U.S. soldiers are die, but also that, like, the ones who are there are these really, they have the best intentions, and don't you think that's nice? I mean, do you feel like that was sort of, is that a possible sort of, like, playing into this, or do you feel like it's it's something more nebulous?
1: I felt in this case it was slightly more nebulous. So although AFRICOM said that I could interview this commander who was in town while I was in Niamey, They initially said they could not help me visit Walam, which was a special forces site uh, where we ended up going, Nicole and myself, uh, Nicole Tong, who did amazing photos for the piece. And it was only after we were there on the ground that we were able to negotiate that access. So Mm -hmm. it seemed to me that part of it was, you know, the press people don't speak to each other. The Air Force and the special forces are different chains of command within the military. There was no one who really wanted to bridge that divide and say, hey, we should really work to give these journalists access. But I think that, you know, the Special Forces soldiers who are coming through on these 6 months rotations, they were stressing when we visited, like, we really think the Nigerian military is doing a great job. We really feel like we're valuable here. And there was Mm -hmm. a sense of purpose. And... Unfortunately, it's also contrasted with the fact that in 2020, you've had these extrajudicial killings and you've had the Nigerian military also perpetrate abuses. And that piece of the puzzle also didn't seem resolved. Um, When I spoke with the U.S. military commander, he said Niger had done a good job of investigating Yeah, that was a
0: really funny part of the story.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but as far as I know, they didn't actually prosecute anyone for those disappearances who are of the Puel or Falani minority. So the other disturbing thing that I saw there was how what had started as conflicts between herders and farmers over resources was sort of spiraling into something that was more of an ethnic conflict because applying this label of terrorism had radically changed their response, which had been one of conflict mediation and trying to figure out, okay, what do you, you know, how can we address this? Um, As well as, of course, the changing tactics of some of these armed groups, which did become more brutal. And then you had this militarized response, and then the differences between groups became exacerbated and risked,
0: um, yeah, risked deteriorating. And, I mean, to what extent does technology... Influ- like heighten those um those ethnic tensions because it's like around the world you know things like Facebook people you know for whatever reason they want to be social media famous and then they become like a spe- uh, you know like this personality that's reporting on things that may or may not have happened and then that really again fans the flames of conflict between ethnic groups i mean and I- i'm thinking of you know recently like Ethiopia. Technology is an accelerant. So, you know, you write about um, some families using their cell phones. Like, so So what is the technology situation like?
1: Yeah, it's definitely
0: becoming more of a factor. So Bubakar
1: Diallo, the conflict mediator that I spoke with, told me that over the past year he had been documenting people sending out mass text messages on WhatsApp or other messaging platforms that called for violence or that said, you know, someone from this group stole cattle or someone from this group did this, go out and find them and sort of make them pay or, you know, was trying to rally people towards violence. And he said he had reported those messages to the authorities but didn't feel that the authorities yet knew what to do or how to sort of stop the spread of misinformation uh, through these channels. So I think it's becoming more of an issue. And you also see in the last year these self-defense militias that were forming, and this is not directly related to technology perhaps, but does sort of show how, you know, people in these remote villages where there have been attacks understandably want to protect themselves and want to form a defense if the government forces aren't there and they're, you know, people are just coming into their village and, and killing people and also stealing animals. But then the creation of these militias obviously risks that, human rights abuses can also be perpetrated or that members of a particular ethnic group will be unfairly targeted and there's no one there to kind of hold people accountable.
0: Right. Again, it seems like there's this disorder that kind of is pervasive and again it's not it's not sort of a comment a commentary on like oh, underdeveloped Africa. It's quite it's something like nastier and more nebulous than that for sure.
1: And then, I mean, you also had, you know, in the last few months in Mali, and this is an issue I think people are worried about in the region more broadly, that the anti-Western sentiment has turned into also propaganda where there is this idea that Russia is better to align with and that, um, you know, Russian forces would not commit the same abuses that foreign forces would, which is not, you know, Western
0: forces, which is not the case at all. Right. They're tankies. <laughs> which is scary, <laughs> which is really scary. Um, So, you know, what, you know, what would you like for listeners to know about, you know, like the texture or the experience of not just the country, but also the conflict? Because we have to rely on words in part because, you know, you, went, you mentioned Nicole Tong, great Uh, photojournalist went with you and she was even more limited than you were in terms of what she was allowed to take photos of. So I guess what are the what are the things that I guess really to you express this the country and the conflict?
1: I really wanted people to understand that there are many Nigerians who are working to try to address this conflict and People like Boubacar Diallo have been working on trying to bring stability in parts of Niger for decades, and I don't feel that their voices are adequately represented in higher levels of decision-making, yet I think they often hold the keys to how to address and mitigate some of this violence. And, you know, before I went, I thought a lot about how there's sort of a genre of military reporting where a reporter embeds and covers everything from US military perspective and or from that embed, and that can be valuable in some ways, but it really limits the voices and perspectives of people most affected by the conflict. And so I hoped to amplify some of those in the piece that I did. I think I would also really like Americans in particular to educate themselves on how the US foreign policy is playing out in this part of the world. And you know, it's not just that the US military is there. The U.S. also sells weapons uh, to the French, for instance, that are used in Mali. And there are a number of ways in which we have a huge impact. And I think this should be debated at higher levels and should be in public consciousness.
0: Absolutely. Did you feel safe when you were reporting this?
1: For the most part, yes. I went to Agadez for a few days and had a very interesting Experience there, where after being there a few days, I realized everyone knew that a journalist was in town, and I didn't feel unsafe. But I just realized, okay, it's very visible when there aren't a lot of journalists coming through, and at night the city does have a lot of trade from from different parts of of the Sahel coming through, and you see a lot of unmarked cars, and so it had a sort of different feel from Niamey, which felt very safe. And then going to Walam, we had actually been told that the road was very safe and that Nigerians go all the time from Niame to Walam. But because of this Nigerian government requirement that we hire an armed escort, we had to go through this process of procuring one and paying a very high fee. And that's obviously frustrating and was also an issue when we were in the displaced persons camp because the armed guards, or they were sort of walking around the camp, even though we had asked them not to and asked, you know, please uh, stay in the car. And so that, that actually made me more uncomfortable than sort of the, you know, the other safety issues was just like, I don't generally find it helpful to be associated with people who are heavily armed when reporting.
0: Yeah, it's weird. People don't want to open up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's the
1: craziest. Nor, nor should anyone have to see, you know, heavily armed people walking around the area that they're living yeah so
0: yeah for sure um and I guess do you feel like if there was diplomacy what would diplomacy look like not that you have to solve this conflict but things that would either lessen it or get or get it to a point where there's a little bit more stability and that's not just within Niger but the entire Sahel and even like into Libya because again there are huge problems in Libya no one is talking about
1: yeah, it's a very complicated question, but I think, I definitely think it starts with listening and working with the Nigerians who are not in the military, but who have been working on this conflict from another angle, as well as um, thinking through how US funding could be supporting people who are doing human rights and governance work in Niger or who are doing local peace building. But often, you know, the US government might give very small amounts of money to local peace builders or conflict mediators, but this doesn't feed into a broader strategy. And those people at the end of the day, they're not actually sitting around with command, you know, military commanders explaining how uh, the conflict is going from their perspective. So I think changing that dynamic a little bit would help. And I think Niger has indicated it's exploring negotiations with some of these armed groups you know it's very difficult to negotiate with some of the groups it's and i don't you know want to imply that if the us just announced it would do negotiations then suddenly everything would be over but i think the fact that the us and france are so opposed to negotiations it hinders local efforts to maybe seek alternative solutions
0: well thank you so much and thank you for doing this amazing work no thank you for having me You've been listening to The Harper's Podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only $16.97.